Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by NIHR Dementia Researcher. I am Megan O'Hare, and today I am going to be talking with three researchers from Oxford University we are going to explore why microglia are awesome, why they use induced pluripotent stem cell models and how uh, they feed genome-wide association studies hit and basic science into drug discovery with phenotypic screening. So before we start, I just want to explain that this is during the uh, lockdown. So we are recording this all at a very safe distance away from each other on laptops. So the sound quality won't be quite as good as when we're in the studio, uh, but I mean, the quality of the conversation will be good, so that's fine. Uh, so I'd like to introduce Dr. Hazel Hall-Roberts, who is a black belt in Wadurai. Is that how you say it? It's Wadaroo. I know that's how it's spelled, yes. <laughs> and postdoctoral research scientist at the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology and ARUK Oxford Drug Discovery Institute. Dr. Emma Mead, a senior neurobiologist and team leader at the ARUK Oxford Drug Discovery Institute, who also has an allotment and is very creative in the kitchen. Both mm -hmm. skills that I think are coming in handy during this isolation time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, keeping you busy. <laughs> <laughs> and Maria Krieger, Karabova, how did I do? Very well, better than most people. <laughs> okay. Uh, DPhil student also at Sir William Dunn School of Pathology, University of Oxford. And Maria's claim to fame is that she once overheard squatted her postdoc supervisor. Did you drop them? I did not. Oh. <laughs> no postdocs were harmed that day. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so hello everyone. Hello. Uh, and um, thank you for joining us. So let's start with uh, all of you to introduce yourselves better than I've just done and tell us a bit more about your background and how you came to be at Oxford. Should we start with Hazel? Hi, I'm Hazel, obviously. Um, so this is my first postdoc and before this I did my PhD at the University of Bath, which was doing dementia research using immortalized cell lines. And at the end of that period of time, I thought, I really want to work on stem cells, um, but wanted to stay in dementia. So I came to Oxford uh, to learn about stem cells and work in one of the best stem cell facilities in the whole country um, with Dr. Sally Cowley and Professor William James. And this has the added bonus of also getting to work with the ARUK Drug Discovery Institute who funded me. Great, um, before we move on to the other two, just quickly, why did you want to carry on working in stem cells? Oh, um, I wanted to learn about stem cells because I felt like um, at the time it felt like there was this dichotomy of people working on in vivo models and people working with stem cells and there wasn't much of a future for just doing bog standard cell line work and I'm a bit squeamish so that's the honest truth. Okay, so no mice are harmed by you. Okay, and Emma? Yeah, um, so I uh, undertook a degree at the University of Glasgow in molecular and cellular biology, and then I moved on to do a PhD in neuroinflammation. 
And I've always been really interested in sort of translational research. So my postdoc was more angled towards looking at um, how sorry, anti-inflammatory compounds could uh, be uh, sort of taken into the clinic. And from that, I went into industry and, and joined um, Eli Lilly, where I worked to sort of develop inflammatory and neuroimmune um, platforms. And uh, there was really a point where I felt like I wanted to be more involved in directing research and kind of having my own group. And there was a really great opportunity that came up at the University of Oxford at the Drug Discovery Institute to be able to kind of grow into that area. So I was uh, really pleased that they um, were, were happy to take me on as a, a group leader. That's great. I My undergrad degree was also in molecular and cellular biology. And every time I tell people, they're like, what? Because I just ramble <laughs> it all together to get it over and done with. <laughs> OK, and Maria. Hi. Um, at the moment, I'm a second year DPhil student. I'm a neuroscientist by training. I completed my degree at uh, King's College London in 2018. And to be very honest, I'm still in a little bit of an awe from how I ended up in Oxford. Um, during my undergrad, I was fortunate to participate in a study abroad program. And this is something I completed at the Mann Institute at the University of California in Irvine. And I first dipped my toes into Alzheimer's research. Then I received a fantastic mentorship from one of the pioneers in the field of synaptic plasticity. And I also um, devoted my time volunteering in a low income clinic. So I was able to see the effects of dementia on patients in CARES firsthand. So I knew when I returned to the UK, I really want to pursue the dementia research. So I literally Googled Alzheimer's research UK in hope of finding laboratories where I could carry on with internships. And I half expected my emails to end up in spam, but you can imagine my surprise when a few weeks later, I heard back from the Oxford Drug Discovery Institute and Dunn School of Pathology offering me um, a joint summer internship. And Hazel was actually one of my supervisors. And that was really a known point of return for me because the environment, the facility, the novel stem cell uh, methods I was exposed to and the mentorship, um, it, it just sealed the deal. It really encouraged me to continue with the mentor research and um, file a PhD application. And here I am. Great. Do you all work in the same area, same lab now? Is that correct? Or maybe Hazel? Um, so how we fit together is that Maria and I work in the same lab at the Dunn School of Pathology um, under William James and Sally Cowley. Um, but I also work with Emma Mead, who's based up the hill from us, as we say, um, up in the Old Road campus. And she's got her own neuroinflammation team. And I'm also part of her team um, with a number of colleagues working on similar things. And also Emma has been incredibly helpful to my project, um, helping me with uh, purification of the protein of interest. Maybe you could take us through that a little bit. Yeah, I can kick off. Um, so my primary research interest lies in the role of neuroinflammation in the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease. And we've known in our field that neuroinflammation is a common denominator in the neurodegeneration for quite some time, following the glass hits and also imaging studies. Uh, but the reactive microgliosis, the pro-inflammatory state of microglia around toxic protein aggregates in neurodegeneration, it has been consistently described in multiple neurodegenerative diseases, but it was always thought to be secondary to the actual neurodegeneration processes. And the molecular processes surrounding the phagocytic uptake, degradation, and secretion of the protein deposits in microglia 
particularly in humans, are still very poorly understood. So this is what I'm currently working on. I'm, I'm studying the molecular processing of tau protein aggregate, that is my protein of interest, by uh, human iPS-derived macrophages and macroglia. Okay, so you're using induced pluripotent stem cells. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. And then they are just, some of our listeners are social scientists, some are oh, work in health and social care, some are bench scientists. Just maybe you could talk through actually what induced pluripotent stem, stem cells are for us, just very quickly. Um, so induced pluripotent stem cells are a fantastic tool when you want to move on beyond um, beyond cell lines, which are immortalized cancer lines, but they don't um, um, technically reproduce the uh, physiology of the actual cells in human body. And induced pluripotent stem cells are cells that had been um, basically, to start off, they were your fibroblasts, so your skin cells, that were then um, induced by a cocktail, special cocktail of transcription factors back to their uh, proliferatory uh, properties, so your stem cell properties, when all the cells are um, capable of uh, differentiating into everything in your body, so all the other cells in your body. And then in, from this, um, this faith, when they're in their stem cell faith, we can uh, use a set of different transcription factors and differentiation factors to push them into whatever faith we want them to take on. So we can take these stem cells and push them on to become neurons, which we can work with, or microglia or several other epithelial cells and stuff like that. So they have a wonderful advantage of... Um, reproducing the authentic human physiology, recapitulating that, but in a, in a dish where we can zoom in and um, sort of get rid of all the um, systemic noise, all the other variables. Okay. I actually didn't realize you started with a cell line. I thought you started with stem cells. That's interesting. So you take them back to the stem cell uh, situation. So you would start with skin cells. Um, which are taken by biopsy and then these are then reprogrammed to stem cell lines which we store in freezers and then conveniently we can uh, thaw them whenever needed. Okay so you've, you're starting to build up a big uh, library of stem cells and then you can push them into the uh, cell fate that you want them to have so like you said neurons or microglia. So once you have them like that obviously in the neuroinflammation um, paradigm you're working with they are activated microglia, is that right? So you can still activate the microglia? Activated microglia is a, a little bit of an um, interesting phrase um, because we're learning about what microglia respond to, how they behave and um, when they're activated, but perhaps the activation doesn't have anything to do with a specific insult, but perhaps their surveying patrolling role. And um, when we culture the microglia in a dish, we're still not 100% sure about whether they are activated at that point or whether um, they take on the activated role only upon an insult, perhaps by feeding them uh, with um, a cargo, they would normally be phagocytosin, such as um, E. coli, zymosan, uh, or in the context of neurodegeneration, your, uh, your, your proteins of interest. And also the whole uh, question of whether and when microglia are activated, um, 
there is a lot of discussion going on about that being on a spectrum. So they can interchangeably uh, transcribe a set of genes to sort of plastically change their behavior, depending on what kind of environment they're in. Okay. And in your uh, dish with your microglia, do you have neurons as well? Or so you have more of a mixed environment of cells? I personally don't. At the moment, I'm working with um, iPS macrophages and macroglia only, but our lab specifically, um, postdoc Walter Hansler has developed a co-culture system in which when we culture neurons with the iPS macrophages, interestingly, the iPS macrophages actually take on the more microglia-like characteristics. So this really goes on to show that it's the systemic talk between the several types of cells that pushes them towards their true fate. So Emma, maybe we could hear from you a little bit about how you link with Maria's work, how Maria links with you and also your own independent work. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I work pretty much um, entirely in, in the drug discovery space. And at the um, ODDI, we're interested in kind of taking uh, hits from GWAS studies and looking at whether they could become tractable targets. So we do a lot of target validation. So investigating whether something could, you know, is, is likely to be um, involved in Alzheimer's disease or other dementias and sort of taking it forward to see whether we can develop um, screening assays to, um, to, to kind of target that protein of interest and, and modulate it in certain ways. So yeah, in the context of the work that we do with, with Hazel and Maria, um, so uh, Hazel works on a, one of our key projects and um, she's involved in the sort of target validation side of that, I would say, and, and developing some nice assays to investigate that further. And with Maria, so a couple of my uh, team members are protein biochemists and uh, they've been developing uh, methods to, uh, to, to produce tau protein. So the protein that's aggregated in outside this disease and uh, plays an important role in, um, in kind of causing a number of, of the pathologies that we see in dementia and uh, so, so some of my group have been providing Maria with some tau and, and helping her in, in sort of teaching her how to make it herself so um, yeah that's that's kind of where, where I fit in with, with both Hazel and Maria. Okay so we had a podcast last year I think it was called 50 Shades of Microglia um, so hopefully our listeners have all listened to that so they know that general role of microglia but maybe we could hear from you Maria about quite how awesome microglia are? Sure um, so in my personal experience I always think of microglia as your very own personal ninjas avenging any kind of threat to your brain and all of the central nervous system and in more scientific terms microglia serve as your phagocytic sentinels um, so the key effector cells of the immune system patrolling the brain maintaining homeostasis making sure that everything works just fine pruning any kind of unnecessary connections and also clearing up pathogens and cellular debris and um, they're not just smart and capable they're quite the looker because they're really fascinating to observe and study under microscope but for me personally, what I really appreciate about microglia is um, that their function and dysfunction in the brain represents sort of uncharted territory, um, secrets behind an open doors, if you will, because it really stirs hope for new discoveries and treatments. The brain has been studied for decades from neck up and um, it, it was almost always as if the brain functions, doesn't function in unison with the periphery and other cell types surrounding neurons. The term glia literally derives from Greek glue, reflective of how the microglia were long thought of. 
and um, basically it was just to support to the main start of the game, the neurons. So for me personally, as a neuroscientist, it's really encouraging and exciting to see the growth of the interdisciplinary approach um, and the efforts to understand neuronal function in the context of everything else that's going on in the brain. So microglia eat up amyloid and tau protein tangles through phagocytosis. Do we just want them to do more of that? I personally actually believe that we shouldn't be focusing therapeutically on boosting the phagocytic ability um, before we understand better what's happening following the phagocytosis. Because at the moment, it is thought that the decrease in a phagocytic clearance of the misfolded proteins in AD is what's contributing to the pathogenesis. But effective clearance actually relies heavily on the ability to then degrade the cargo via endosomal lysosomal pathways. And endosomal trafficking and lysosome abnormalities actually precede the, um, the appearance of the protein deposits some 20 years prior to the diagnosis. And um, there is plenty of glass heads highlighting the lysosomal dysfunction in AD. And it's sort of um, this long-standing forgotten hypothesis that should be perhaps revisited again. So just boosting the phagocytic ability of microglia can be downright detrimental and inducing a situation where uh, lysosomes can rupture and all the cargo can be then released into the extracellular matrix from which it can propagate and cause further havoc. So, And that's lysosome dysfunction within microglia, or do you mean in neurons as well throughout the brain? Um, I would. I was referring specifically to the lysosomal function in the microglia, although there is a lysosomal dysfunction documented also in neurons in the context of AD. But focusing on increasing phagocytosis before we know whether this can be degraded could be detrimental, in my opinion. But the lysosome dysfunction in neurons, I assume, happens also 20 years previous to the amyloid, if it's also happening in microglia, is that right or, or no? Yeah, that's that that's correct. Um, so far, uh, we don't really have um, very tangible evidence of that because, as you can imagine, it's it's uh, difficult to uh, to visualize it twenty years prior to the diagnosis because you you can't take a set of people uh, predicting whether they will go on to develop Alzheimer's disease twenty years onwards or not. So we don't understand the molecular processes before the diagnosis, but that is the general effort trying to understand exactly what's going on and to catch the um, disease earlier. So Hazel, you mentioned that you work with um, induced pluripotent stem cells, which you gave us a really nice description of, um, but maybe we could actually talk about the advantages of using some of them. Oh, great. So generally we're using um, cells derived from iPSCs as an alternative to using uh, primary rodent cells in order to isolate a particular cell type and, and study that. And one really important advantage relative to rodents is that there are some differences between human and rodent genes, particularly with um, microglia specific genes. In fact, there are some microglial genes in humans that are not expressed at all in mice. Um, and my particular gene of interest, TREM2, is expressed in mice, but has relatively low orthologies, so quite a lot of dissimilarities in the primary amino acid sequence with the rodent gene. Um, and there was a fairly recent study showing that 
Um, if you insert an Alzheimer's disease risk mutation into TREM2 in the mouse gene called R47H, um, it leads to a formation of a premature stop codon, codon and aberrant splicing. And in fact, uh, TREM2 ends up not being expressed. Whereas if you do that to the human gene, the TREM2 protein is expressed perfectly normally and spliced correctly. Um, and we feel that this emphasizes the importance of knowing with what you're studying, the particular focus that you have, that you are looking at the right gene that um, if it's quite different in the mouse, then you really ought to be using the human model. Um, there are a few other advantages. So with the, the iPSC lines that we have, we can gene edit those and turn them into a number of different cell types that are isogenic. And we could then co-culture, say, neurons and microglia or astrocytes together and study how they interact. Um, but we can also reprogram human cells from live patients, as Maria mentioned earlier. And so we could get you know, someone with an Alzheimer's risk mutation and actually reprogram stem cells from them and study their mutation in the dish. Um, so yeah, iPSCs are very versatile. And with the iPSC microglia, we can actually grow these in quite huge bulk and purity um, to do high content screening for potential drugs or potential drug targets. Um, so traditionally that's been done with immortalized cell lines, but um, obviously with the iPSC microglia, we get a more authentic microglial biology and more authentic phenotypes out of those. Maybe very quickly, you could talk a bit, because you, you work on target validation. Um, so a bit about that and how you use the iPSCs to do that. Maybe even describe how your experiments work. Um, yeah, so basically I'm generating what we call iPSC macrophages, but they're our most basic model of human microglia and their gene expression profile is quite similar. Um, and we can generate those from differentiation factories, which is basically um, a big T175 flask full of embryoid bodies that we can just siphon. They, they produce free-floating iPSC macrophages that we can just siphon off um, once a week and then feed them again. So they're continuously producing for a couple of months. Um, and then I will take those um, from a healthy control line and from a line with um, a, an Alzheimer's disease risk mutation in, um, culture them side by side and perform assays on their phenotypes. So look, basically looking at their behavior in the dish. So I'm interested in phagocytosis particularly, and I've developed a couple of assays to study phagocytosis in a more disease relevant context. So using um, dying cells rather than just sort of chucking beads or bacteria at them. And also I've been looking Dying cells, sorry, you mean dying them colour or killing? Oh, dying as in apoptotic, as in um, cells that are right. dead. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, although we have to dye them in order to perform microscopy um, to study the phagocytosis process. Um, and I've also been looking at survival with growth factor withdrawal. I've been looking at motility as well, which turns out to be quite important. Um, and yeah, so it, it's basically a kind of an all-round health testing of the microglia. We, we want to look at a number of different parameters and see 
um, whether any of these are defective with the Alzheimer's mutation. So you said motility is quite important. How is your culture set up? Are they on something they can move around on? Are you talking about motility sort of around each other? How does it work? Is it a 3D space? It's actually really, really difficult to study. Um, so you can just culture the cells in a dish and create a scratch or um, have a stamp that leaves a space clear and then just image how they randomly walk towards each other. Um, but without much stimulation, they move pretty slowly <laughs> in a dish. So we've found that one of the best ways is this a fairly old technique um, with Transwell's assays where you suspend the cells in... Um, it's a membrane with pores above the, the cell culture dish and then put in a chemoattractant underneath. So um, they tend to walk around, they'll walk through the pores onto the underside of the membrane. Um, and then you can, um, with microscopy, measure the total number of cells and also the ones that walked through the pores. Um, and then, of course, the, stimul the stimuli that you're using may also be quite important. Um, in the context of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, I always like those videos where they show the neurons and they put a bit of chemo attractant and they go, and they go really, well, obviously it's time-lapse. They go really fast towards yeah. it. Um, okay, that's great. And you are actually testing different small molecule potential drugs on your iPSC cultures? Um, I have done so in the past with the phagocytosis assay because... I got that into 96 oil plate format with imaging on the Theopra Phoenix. Um, but at the moment, I've been mostly working on, on the actual validation of the target itself on TREM2, our, our gene of interest, um, and just whether, you know, whether we can quite well and quite accurately assess um, any phenotypic defects. And then we can apply that to other targets in the general TREM2 pathway, um, and we can move forward potentially to do some drug screening in future if there's sufficient interest. Um, but I think the main problem we had was um, I, it was suggested that I test a few things, but we weren't entirely clear whether we were looking for things that increased phagocytosis or decreased phagocytosis, um, and we're still not sure. Okay, so does this come back to what Maria was saying about whether you, you, whether you want to increase phagocytosis because actually you might be compounding the problem by creating more debris or there's nowhere for it to go if the lysosomes are dysfunctional. Yeah, it might depend on, on how you're doing it, on what pathways you're activating. Okay. The um, stem cell lines or the lines you're getting from the patients, are they, um, do they have anything to do with TREM2? Um, so we don't have any patient lines. Um, I know that they've been working on them over at UCL um, and Cambridge, but no, um, we're actually using the other technique, which is having just a healthy donor and then um, CRISPR gene editing the mutation onto that. So then we have a healthy genetic background where, um, which kind of controls the other simultaneous risk factors that are involved. So you're purely focusing on the function of trem yes, We're purely okay. looking at that particular gene. And then you can create an isogenic series, if you like, in a sort of controlled fashion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, Emma, maybe let's move on to you to talk about GWAS. GWAS. 
genome-wide association studies. You've all been <laughs> saying the acronym, but... <laughs> um, so maybe even just go right back to basics and tell us what it is and how to pronounce it. Sure. So as you say, genome-wide association studies, or GWAS, are um, studies that have been performed to identify uh, genes that are modulated um, or have variants in them in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And some of these um, genes might increase the risk of somebody developing disease and some may uh, reduce the risk. So there's a variety of, of genes that have been identified in, in both directions. And um, these uh, Several of these genes contain uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And um, as I say, these, these affect the, the function of the protein in the end to kind of cause changes that, that affect Alzheimer's disease risk. So um, we've been really interested in, in looking at these uh, GWAS hits and uh, really kind of using them as a source of targets really to identify suitable um, proteins to work on. And we're really quite focused and really excited when we see some of these genes that um, interact in connected networks, because if we can find proteins that uh, communicate in, in distinct signaling pathways, we can find quite a number of different points where we might be able to um, intervene um, with, with, with chemical compounds. And that increases our chance of identifying a, a drug that we could potentially develop and also kind of um, increases the, the probability of us finding something that's safe as well because that's quite an important consideration when we look at the immune system and modulating that. So have you found hits in TREM2 that then you feed into Hazel's work so then she can use CRISPR to introduce those specific single nucleotide yeah, so it's well known that there are several um, single nucleotide polymorphisms in the TREM2 gene, uh, which are conferring sort of loss of function um, mutations in, in TREM2. And as Hazel said, I think she said the R47H variant is, is important and that affects uh, ligand binding. And then there's another variant, H157Y, that affects um, the, the shedding of TREM2. So as a receptor, TREM2 is, is released from the membrane and uh, we're kind of looking at ways that we can can explore how um, to kind of potentially affect ligand binding and, and promote the stability or, or inhibit the shedding of TREM2. So we're quite interested in, in looking at those, how those uh, variants affect the function of the protein and, um, and kind of understanding uh, the, the, the protein and its activity in general so that we can uh, try and find the best strategy to, to target it um, therapeutically. So this is a Silly question? I don't know. But basically, the uh, genetics you're talking about and the mutations, the patients will have had them from birth, presumably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. So, and then this is a disease of associated with old age. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, these, you know, these uh, variants are, they, they range from being fairly common in the population uh, through to being sort of quite sort of rare in, in some ways. And almost the kind of, the, the more rare that the, the variant, the, the stronger the, the phenotype. So we know that patients who have mutations in genes such as pre one and 2, are that's causative. So people with those mutations will have, you know, they will go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. But the, the genes that have um, a kind of, uh, are less common, uh, or so, sorry, more common in the population, have uh, polymorphisms that uh, confer sort of lower risk. 
So it's really then down to a combination of things like lifestyle factors, environmental factors, and this added kind of effects that you have with the with the with the risk uh, genes that contributes to uh, sort of uh, the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease as people grow older. So it's really all these kind of contributing factors that come together to to kind of um, lead towards uh, people developing disease in old age. If you're using a stem cell or an iPSC culture, you can't replicate the environmental factors yeah. that will impact mm, that. Yeah. That's quite right. And we really use them as a model to kind of understand exactly what that one protein or you know what one gene that we're interested in is doing and what the variant does so that we can really get a much kind of more uh, kind of in-depth idea about really what impact that has on the, the, the microglia itself and that will then kind of inform us about uh, how the microglia behave in, in the brain during disease. So we're sort of coming near the end now so maybe we can move on to Maria and you can tell us the most exciting things going on in your field of research right now is one of my questions on my sheet. There is so much exciting stuff going on in the dementia field in general that it's really hard to pick just one thing. If you go onto the ALTS forum, 2019 year was actually described as the year of hope because of so many breakthroughs and results described. But uh, I think going back specifically to the role of neuroinflammation in AD, I would pick the growth of data we are extracting in um, several cohorts from humans. And I think this is really important given the doubts as to whether we can truly reciprocate and understand the AD pathology in mice models of the disease. Because for example, a single cell transcriptomic study on the post-mortem cohort um, down in Chicago found that human AD associated microglia actually only express about um, uh, some 30 out of 250 genes previously described as AD associated in mice. So you can see that in mice, we can get a lot of false positive hits and vice versa. We have to be careful about drawing conclusions from um, the mice studies and the cell line studies to humans. So the growth of the human studies is really exciting because it um, cements the role of microglia in AD and confirms that this is the right direction. I think, uh, I actually don't know who's going to do it or whether we've done the podcast yet about mouse models in AD. We should have really it together and have like a a playoff between the two. <laughs> when you're listing IPSC uh, advantages, it's all like, yes, yes, yes. And then you do the mouse model ones, you're like, yes. Anyway, they complement each other, let's say. And I actually have a really meme question maybe maybe this one's for Emma a bit more as you worked at Eli Lilly for a while but uh, Maria mentioned that in 2019 it was the year of hope for all these things and then loads of pharmaceutical companies cut their neuroscience budgets mm -hmm. and departments and things and I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on that having worked in industry for a while yeah, sure. I mean, we all know that, you know, neurodegeneration is a really challenging field to work in. And, you know, sort of our, the patients that we uh, are working towards helping, uh, they have a disease that's kind of progressed over sort of decades, really, which means that it's very difficult to sort of understand what's, you know, had the course of the disease well. And I think that that impacts the drug discovery efforts. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, 
I can appreciate that it's difficult for pharmaceutical companies to kind of really find the way, the right way to uh, develop the, these drugs to make sure that they are kind of, you know, finding the right cohorts of patients to, to look at in their clinical trials and really understand the endpoints that they're looking for. And I think that that presents a big challenge. Um, so, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a real shame that a lot of companies have, have sort of decided that they can't continue with this work. And I think that's where, you know, institutes like the, the Drug Discovery Institutes really kind of come to the fore because we're working a lot with industry now to sort of de-risk some of their um, approaches and, and really kind of do some of the work that they, they can't necessarily invest in. And I think that, that that's a nice partnership that seems to be kind of progressing things well. And, and I hope that that's something that will continue. Yeah, we actually did a podcast with a few people and the AR UK Dementia Consortium. And yeah, mm. that was sort of the message coming out that was that industry and academia need to work together. To Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so today has been great. Have you got any tips for ECRs wanting to work with IPSCs? Are there any irritating things you find about the cells or any tips at all? Maybe uh, Hazel, you love IPSCs. Yeah, sure. You have to find a group where lots of people are doing it because inevitably when you're actually growing the IPSCs, you will have to come in, someone will have to come in and feed them every day. Um, so most labs... Yeah, most labs have a rotor um, where your colleagues can do it alternately over the weekend so that you're not in every weekend. Um, our lab actually has a stem cell feeding robot for the weekends. Wow. Is that a, a, a robot or you just call the person the robot? Oh, no, it's an actual robot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, we're, we're robots too. <laughs> <laughs> just pipetting, all day pipetting. Um, and Maria, any tips for people? Because you said you actually worked with patients with dementia, is that right? I did. Um, yes, I volunteered in, in clinic, in low income clinic, particularly where um, our task was to translate better um, because the doctors don't often have enough time to explain all the nitty-gritty details about what's going on with the patient what prognosis they can expect and stuff like that so our task was to sit down with them in a more calm environment and explain and um, comfort a bit and liaise with the carer and uh, prepare them for what's coming I would say that having having experienced the clinical settings and then transitioning to the bench science can tremendously complement uh, not just the skill set but also the results you get out of your work because um, you have witnessed both sides and oftentimes they can be um, quite divorced so that when you're working on the molecular pathology you, you don't always appreciate what's going on with the actual person so having that in mind always either having witnessed it or perhaps just educating yourself. Um, I know there are um, online, many online courses, ARUK, NIH, um, offering the, the uh, clinical perspective on dementia. It's fantastic because it really, uh, it helps you understand why you're doing this to start with, and it motivates you further to, to progress with your bench work. Yeah, that's great. I think more about scientists should go into hospitals and actually meet sure. 
Um, well, great. Thank you so much for today. Uh, I think we're going to say uh, goodbye. Uh, I'd like to thank you all, Hazel, Maria and Emma. We have profiles on all of today's panellists on the website, including details, details of their Twitter accounts. Well, just their Twitter handles, not their like, personal details and passwords. Uh, and we will also include a link to information on their work. If any of our listeners have questions, we have a busy WhatsApp community group where we host uh, discussions about the topics from the podcasts. Uh, details can be found on our website. So we look forward to chatting to you about this on there. And finally, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast through our website, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, SoundCloud and all the other places you find podcasts. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.